Publishing for Profit podcast is brought to you by Ghostwriters and Co. Earn more money by publishing better content and learn how to increase your thought leadership so you can build your brand. Head over to ghostwritersandco.com for more information. That's ghostwritersandco.com. And now, your host, Joel Mark Harris. Hello, and welcome to the Publishing for Profit podcast. This is your host, Joel Mark Harris. Today, we interview Chris Riddell, who is the founder of five healthcare companies and the author of a new book called Blood Money. It is the story of a whistleblower who went against some huge healthcare companies in the United States who were defrauding the American taxpayers. Chris has spent over 40 years in the healthcare industry, and his companies that he founded included Hunter Heart, Hunter Laboratories, Maris Laboratories, Microscan, and Micromedia Systems. In 1992, Maris was ranked by Business Week as the 40th best small company in America. He has served as managing director for Providence Capital, a boutique New York Investment Bank, as the chairman of Chai Laboratory Systems, a uh, hospital and commercial laboratory consulting firm in the U.S. He was also a member of a board of directors of Boston Heart Lab, and he is currently serving as a member of business executives for national security. For the past decade or so, Chris has concentrated his efforts on fighting against fraud in the medical lab systems that have been defrauding the American taxpayers and the medical industry as a whole, which is the subject of his book. One of his proudest achievements was when he received the Taxpayers Against Fraud Whistleblowers Award in 2011 for assisting to recover $286 million from two of the largest medical lab um, companies in the United States. We have a great conversation. We talk about how he became a whistleblower, about his new book, about the writing process, and the whole uh, medical system in the United States as a whole. So hopefully you enjoyed this conversation and this interview with Chris Riddell. Hi, Chris. Welcome to the show. How are you today? I'm just great, Joel, and thank you for having me. So I want to talk about your new book, which just released, called Blood Money. Can you tell us a little bit about that, and what is the story about? Blood Money is a true legal thriller. It's the story of how a Silicon Valley entrepreneur and CEO morphed into a fraud fighter for taxpayers. And it's a behind-the-scenes look at what it's like to work with uh, government prosecutors trying to stop massive, like totally massive healthcare fraud. It's scary and thrilling in different parts. Um, and, uh, you know, that's what the book is about. So there, there seems to be a lot of Hollywood elements to it, you know, like kidnapping, you know, Cayman Islands, you know. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, in the book, 
our stories of attempted murder. Yeah. Um, fraudsters, um, are going down to the Cayman Islands to try and hide their assets. Uh, a CEO who, um, three government prosecutors told me they haven't found it yet, but they told me that, uh, they had heard that he had buried a shipping container filled with gold in his backyard. <laughs> wow. It also has amazing stories of uh, an assistant uh, attorney general uh, in the state of Georgia sabotaging her own state's case, costing taxpayers millions, and of a corrupt governor who sabotaged his own attorney general's case. Things that most people would never believe could happen. But everything in the book is true. So is, is uh, Hollywood calling yet? Is that the, yet. the plan? <laughs> <laughs> Not yet. The book just came out uh, in October. Yeah. Although it is a bestseller now in three categories. Oh, congratulations. That's amazing. Yes, um, thank you. Can you, so you've spent, I mean, your pretty much your entire career in the healthcare industry. Can you tell us a little bit how, you know, um, I guess your background and how you came to, um, I guess, figure out, find out about these fraudsters? Sure. Uh, when I graduated from college with a degree in political science, I had no idea what I was going to do. And uh, my friend said, oh, go to sales. You know, they make a lot of money. And I thought, well, I'll do that for a couple of years, go to Europe, come back into a graduate school. Um, and so I eventually accepted a job with a healthcare company, a very small medical device company. Even though I'd gotten a D in biology, the sales manager convinced me that he thought I could do okay. And after three years, at the age of 24, I started my first company, Micromedia Systems, and we developed a new way to, uh, to identify what type of bacteria are causing infection in a much more precise way of how to treat them. My second company, Microscan, was founded, uh, what, about six years later, and it, it took that product line to a, you know, a, a higher level. My third company was my first medical laboratory, Maris Laboratories. And the success of that was at a whole new level. We took it public in 1991. And uh, four months after a secondary public offering in 1992, it was identified by Forbes as the 40th best small company in America. Uh, I then retired for a while and then came back into the industry in 2003, starting Hunter Laboratories. It's named after my youngest son, Hunter. And shortly after we got started, uh, I mean, we built a beautiful laboratory with the most modern equipment known to man. It was a fantastic lab. But as we got going, sales reps came to me and said, Chris, these huge giants, Quest and LabCorp, they're multi-billion dollar companies and they're the two the liars in the industry are offering prices so cheap that, but unless we can match them, these were prices to physicians so that physicians would choose that laboratory with a loss leader scheme and they'd make their money 
on the other business the doctor has that wasn't built to him, Medicare, Medicaid, and private insurance. They said, you know, if we don't match these prices, we're not gonna be able to grow very fast. So when I saw the prices, I saw they were well below cost. And I said, you know, I'm gonna call my regulatory counsel and find out if I were to try to attempt to match this, if I'd have any legal liability. Sure enough, our lawyer said, oh yeah, First of all, uh, if you don't pass those discounts on to the Medi-Cal program, then you're in a clear violation. And oh, by the way, offering these below-cost discounts are kickbacks to doctors. Don't do it. And then, you know, I remember sitting by my waterfall one day, realizing we couldn't go on because we couldn't get the volume we needed to be profitable in the face of this illegal activity, in these taxpayer scams. So my choices were, uh, first, uh, knowingly violate federal law. Second, um, you know, try and do something about it. And eventually I came to the conclusion that I had to do something about it. It was just wrong for the industry. It was wrong, certainly it was fatal to our company. I didn't want to have to you know, lay off 150 wonderful employees. And third, it's just wrong that taxpayers were being policed so badly. So that's how the, my first whistleblower lawsuit uh, originated. Did you know at that time how difficult it would be to go against uh, these huge Goliath companies? Or was it... Uh, were you surprised at just how difficult it would be to, um, I guess, speak out uh, on, on this issue? I have no idea how whistleblowers tend to be destroyed. When the companies that they've gone after realize who it is, they do everything they can to ruin their lives. And most of them end up uh, blackballed, unemployable, divorced and bankrupt. I did not know that. Mm. I knew it was difficult to fight a billion dollar company with the best lawyer money to buy, but I had no idea of the risks for a whistleblower. Do you regret um, blowing the whistle or are you, do you feel like you made the right choice for you and your family? Oh, it was a tough call and it was a funny story. When I told my wife, who was also a partner in the business, what I wanted to do, she was absolutely against it. And, and you know, finally I wore her down and she said, okay, Chris, you can go ahead and do this. I don't want to hear one word about it. And uh, if it comes back to harm our children or her reputation in the community, I will never forgive you. Mm. So it was a very hard choice. Um, in my heart, I felt it was the right thing to do. And in retrospect, it was, you know, scary, very scary times, but it worked out for the best. Hmm. And so you guys eventually won a, was it 240 something odd million dollar suit against these companies. Can you tell us, walk us through what happened there and how did you feel after you guys won that suit? Sure. The, uh, 
That was a verdict against one of the companies, Class mm. Diagnostics, the largest laboratory testing company. Two weeks before that settlement, we were financially done. We were at the brink of having to declare personal bankruptcy and corporate bankruptcy and losing our house and pulling our kids out of their school. We were really, I was totally in a deep funk. It was very scary. And then two weeks later, we were in a settlement conference and we came to that amazing number. And uh, <laughs> I felt fantastic. I felt vindicated for doing it in the first place and greatly relieved that our family and our business were not going to be destroyed. Do you think that there is enough protection for whistleblowers in general? And if not, then what should there, what should a protection can there be for people who want to speak out but are too afraid to? I don't think there is enough protection. There are protections there. The statute uh, clearly says there can't be retribution against you. But in my case, the um, reason we our company got into so much financial distress was because when Quest and LabCorp, LabCorp is the second largest laboratory company, learned that uh, I was the plaintiff, they went to Blue Shield, a very large insurance company, and said, you take Hunter Labs out of network and we'll give you an additional 10% discount. Together, they were being paid 70% of the laboratory testing costs of Blue Shield. So it was an easy decision for Blue Shield. But from that point forward, we had a dagger in our heart. And so I went to the, uh, during the settlement conference, I asked the assistant attorney general who was running it for California, if as a term of the settlement, he would ensure that Quest and LabCorp went to Blue Shield and put us back in network. He refused to do it. So even though those protections are there, that doesn't mean that you're really going to be able to, you know, benefit from them. And so what, should there be government oversight or what is kind of like, what can we do for whistleblowers? Um, if, if the existing protections were rigidly followed, by the departments of justice, both state and federal, I think whistleblowers would be okay. Mm. But um, I know in the case of the uh, California Attorney General, he said, look, you made enough money with this lawsuit. You know, I don't need to do anything else to help you. Hmm. Well, that may be true of me, but what about all the other poor fellows who ended up having their lives ruined? There's no recourse for those guys, and I don't know how you help them. Um, unless you can pass some law that says if a company blackballs you, uh, that they should be on the hook for something. Hmm. That's not the case today. Did you ever feel like those dark days? You know, you went up some from like, you went up against some really powerful people, attorney generals governors who didn't want you to succeed did were you ever feeling like 
you know, you should just back down? Or is it something that you always felt that in your heart you had to see uh, through uh, for, for better or for worse? We didn't have these issues with attorney generals and uh, a governor until we were like four or five years into the case. Hmm. And by that point, we had crossed the Rubicon. And I knew in my heart again, it was the right thing to do. These companies were stealing hundreds of millions of dollars from these particular states. And it's just amazing to me that a, a governor could be so corrupt and that an assistant attorney general could sabotage your own case. Hmm. It made no sense. Yeah, it really does feel like a Hollywood movie for sure. <laughs> Well, it was rough to live through. You put all this time and effort in, you know you're right. Mm -hmm. And in the case of uh, Florida, where the attorney general, I'm sorry, where the governor destroyed his own attorney general's case, um, the assistant attorney general we were working with, two weeks before uh, the governor did this, said of all these years in law and of all his whistleblower cases, this was the closest thing to a slam dunk he had ever seen. Then the governor stepped in. So in, I guess, uh, moving on a bit, in 2011, you won a award. I think it's, uh, correct me if I'm wrong here, but it's um, fraud against uh, taxpayers, uh, whistleblower for, the, you know, for being a whistleblower. Um, how, how did it feel to win that award and, and what did it mean to you personally? It's the Taxpayers Against Fraud Whistleblower of the Year. Thank you, yes. Um, At the time, I didn't really understand the significance of it. But as years went by, and I met some of the other winners of that award, and had time to spend with them, as well as hearing the stories of people who were utterly decimated, I've come to realize it was a major achievement against all odds. Hmm. And so, you know, we're, we're almost a decade uh, later. Uh, what made you write that book now? I wanted to tell the story of a couple of things. One is the massive fraud in the healthcare. Uh, the FBI estimated in 2011 that $234 billion a year were stolen by unscrupulous healthcare operators. That's a quarter of the healthcare budget in this country, a quarter. And last year, the Department of Justice put out a press release probably announcing it had collected $2.6 billion for the year. That's 1.3% of the FBI's estimate. I wanted to show what it was like to work with the Department of Justice. And I have a chapter in the back of the book on what DOJ can do to dramatically improve the success. These are simple suggestions. I'd really like to see the Department of Justice take a good look at those and implement some of them. Mm -hmm. um, I think that would have a dramatic effect on fraudsters and the amount of fraud in this country. And lastly, I wanted whistleblowers, potential whistleblowers, to know the odds that they face and the huge risk they're about to take. Their lives will never be the same. 
and I have a chapter on rules for whistleblowers, which if you follow those rules, you have some protection, mm. quite a bit of protection, actually. But if you just jump into it blindly, you, you, you're likely to be crushed. Can you walk us through some of those rules for people who, who are thinking about, you know, speaking out but are afraid to? Yes. The first thing is ask yourself a very simple question. Is whatever the fraud is easy enough to understand by a 12-year-old? If the answer to that is no, if it's a complicated fraud, more than likely the Department of Justice is not going to want to have much to do with it. If the answer to that is yes, ask yourself, what evidence do you have? Do you have emails? Do you have text messages? Uh, you know, what do you have to show to somebody that proves the fraud? And if you feel you have that, I think the, the next step, there are uh, a cottage industry that's sprung up in the last five years of litigation funders. These are companies who will essentially give you money in exchange for a piece of whatever you may get in a settlement. Hmm. Call on some litigation funders. If they don't think the lawsuit is going to stand up and survive, take that to heart. But if they do think it's going to stand up and they're willing to give you anywhere from one to five million dollars, you've protected your downside. So the company even if they blackball you, you have a nice amount of money to protect yourself and cushion yourself, uh, maybe for life and at least until you can find some other profession to do. And then the funder will help you find a really good whistleblower attorney. Mm. Uh, can you tell us, going back to the book, what was it like? What was the experience like writing the book and kind of reliving some of these events? Was it really difficult or was it really easy to write? It was very cathartic to write it. I loved writing it. Uh, I mean, writing the first draft for C-Drafts was really fun and I totally enjoyed it. And after about a year, I was done and we sent it out to uh, viewers. And they said, oh, this is an excellent investigative journalism report, but it's not a thriller. So I had to rewrite. <laughs> and I, I, I got the help of a ghostwriter. And together, we wrote, rewrote the entire book to turn it into a thriller. And when that was done, I had to have our attorneys review it um, um, to make sure that we were going to be sued for something. And as a consequence of that, I had to rewrite it a third time. <laughs> so, so how long did it take you all together? It took three years hmm. all together. And then, of course, um, the stories are true. Finding an agent is virtually impossible. I mean, to think that John Grisham was turned down 30 times <laughs> for his first book, which became an international bestseller, that was the only thing that gave me peace as I was turned down time after time after time. So finally, I went to Acorn Publishing and eliminated the, uh, the agent. It just went directly to a self-publisher. You strike me as somebody who doesn't give up easily. Is that an innate trait for you, or is that something that you learned along the way? I think I've always been that way. I know uh, 
when my body was younger, I used to play a lot of basketball and tennis. And, you know, there was nothing more fun for me than in a one-on-one -on -one situation, beating the defender. I just loved that. <laughs> and I guess it, it's just who I am. And so in business, you know, I'd work 80, 90 hours a week. I wanted to do everything I possibly could to make sure the company could, could be as good as it possibly could. And so what um, have... Do you suspect that there will be any changes with the way the medical system is run? Um, and if, you know, I guess maybe just, yeah, if, um, if you think that your book will have any change, if the lawsuit had any change, um, sort of what the future you think will hold for the medical industry? Um, not just the Quest LabCorp lawsuit but we filed several federal lawsuits on the heels of that, uh, which were very successful. In one, we actually went to trial and won a $114 million verdict. And interestingly, the Department of Justice had as many lawyers in that case at the trial, 17, <laughs> as they had at the Enron trial. <laughs> um, and as a consequence of all the work that we've done, there will be far fewer kickbacks in the uh, healthcare industry and far fewer other technical violations that we brought to light and exposed. And a company can no longer say, oh, we didn't know. And so what's next for your book? For this book? Mm -hmm. uh, um, hopefully I'll be doing a lot of uh, podcasts like this and speaking engagements. And um, I'm also continuing to go after fraudsters, which uh, I, I enjoy the intellectual challenge of finding the fraud, finding the evidence, and um, finding the motions and going through the legal process. Maybe I'm nuts. <laughs> Very few people would probably be intellectually stimulated by that. But I am. And I spend a lot of time at it now. Is your wife ready to kill you yet? No, now she's happy. She's happy. Uh, in fact, and, for the, and until, uh, until the settlement conference with Quest, which was you know, five years later, she refused to talk about it at all. Hmm. I mean, at night, at dinner, at the office, it was off the table. Gotcha. So Chris, I want to wrap it up with uh, one last question. And this is something I ask all my guests. And what is a book that has perhaps inspired you or one that you like to read or uh, one that you like to gift a lot? I love to read. And there are so many talented authors that are out there. But one of the books I loved was uh, Perfect Predator. Hmm. It's a true story about a husband and wife doctor they went to uh, Egypt and the husband um, went into this temple and, not temple but uh, pyramid lesser known pyramid that had just been discovered and uh, the wife didn't want to go in because she had to get down and crawl in and dust everywhere and within days he got very sick hmm. and so the hospitals in Egypt couldn't treat him so they flew him to uh, Germany 
hospital there couldn't treat him. Um, he had some type of infection. So they flew him to uh, San Diego and they treated him at the hospital where they were both employed. And he died. And, and, and this woman, who was uh, not a MD, she was a PhD, I think, uh, I forget what it was in. She took it upon herself to research and found a revolutionary new method of treating this infectious disease that no one had ever thought of. And it, it saved her husband's life. Hmm. And it's just, it's just one of these stories that just it grabs your heart. And at the same time, it's thrilling going through it, seeing what she did and the obstacles she faced to save her husband. Gotcha. So Chris, for people who want to reach out to you, where is the best place to find you? ChrisRydellAuthor.com. Gotcha. My website, and I love for people to reach out to me. And uh, book is uh, available on Amazon and all the usual places? Yes. Gotcha. Well, Chris, thank you so much for being on the show. It was a pleasure. Um, and I appreciate your time and enjoy the rest of your day. Joel, thank you so much for having me. The pleasure was mine. And you enjoy the rest of your day too. <laughs> thank you so much. Bye. Thank you for listening to Publishing for Profit. Please like and subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.